I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing recent developments in China's relations with Russia and the future trajectory of Sino-Russia relations. In recent years, there's been a clear trend of closer ties between Moscow and Beijing. Some observers called the relationship an axis of convenience, insisting that Russia and China have inherent conflict of interests and therefore their cooperation would remain limited. Others, including me, question that analysis. Russia-Chinese relations are expanding and deepening. Areas of disagreement exist, of course, but both sides have been able and willing to compartmentalize those differences. Russia and China share many common objectives, and their cooperation is increasingly strategic. As the two largest countries in Asia, the future course of China-Russia relations impacts not only the region, but the entire world. Today, we're going to discuss the drivers of the China-Russia relationship, where both countries' interests intersect, and which areas hold the greatest potential for cooperation. We'll also talk about potential areas of friction that could cause potential setbacks in bilateral ties. My guest today is Alexander Gabuyev, who's a senior fellow and the chair of the Russia in the Asia-Pacific program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. His research focuses on Russia's policy toward East and Southeast Asia, political and ideological trends in China, and China's relations with its neighbors. Thanks for joining us today, Sasha. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Hmm. So happy to join it. Well, it's a privilege to have you. So let's start with the recent annual U.S. intelligence community threat assessment. Um, and this was, of course, released in late January. And it said that Russia and China are more closely aligned than at any point since the mid-1950s. Do you agree with this assessment? I think this, is great. Uh, this assessment is pretty fair, and I agree with it. In the 50s, the Soviet Union helped to build People's Republic of China as we know it, and that was a very close military alliance. But then after Stalin's death and rivalry for leadership in the Soviet bloc and fallout between Khrushchev and Mao Zedong, we had this prolonged period of tensions. And I think after the Soviet and Gorbachev started the normalization of relationship, it's happened an upward trajectory. And uh, I think that Crimea annexation in 2014 brings it to an entirely new level. So what have been the primary drivers of the relationship in recent years? And what are the really crucial national interests that the two countries have in common? I think if you zoom out, there are at least three fundamental drivers that are really making the countries come closer together. One is the security of the border. The longest continental border that China has is with Russia. The second longest continental border that Russia has with anyone is with China. The first is, of course, with Kazakhstan. Uh, and it's a border with a major power. This border has been source of tensions. It's been very dangerous and expensive to be at confrontation there. So as soon as the countries manage to sort out the border issues and go back to reduction of truth level there, they maintain a certain consensus 
they can never afford to go back to confrontation because it's just too risky and too expensive. Uh, and it's a formula not always with each other, but never against each other. That's the first driver. The second driver would be the compatibility of the economies. Russia has oil, gas, all the natural materials. It badly needs technology. It badly needs investment. China is just the opposite. It has abundance of capital. It has a lot of new technology. It has terrific expertise in building high-quality infrastructure. It badly needs natural resources. So that's a very natural marriage, just as Russia has its natural partner in Europe. And if you look at the trade structure between Russia and the European Union and Russia and China, it's absolutely similar. Point number three is the compatibility of the political systems. Russia, by constitution, is a democracy. China is also a Chinese democracy, socialist democracy with Chinese characteristics. But in reality, these are very authoritarian regimes with different degrees of authoritarian component in it. Uh, but they have a lot of a lot of similarities, and they lo- they have a lot of pages to borrow from each other. For example, Americans don't like that China is stealing their technology. Guess what? Russians can also say that China has stolen the draconian NGO law that China has adopted, basically copying it from Russia. Just today, as we are recording this podcast, the Russian parliament, the state Duma, has passed the law on sovereign Internet, and it's very much based on Chinese design on the way to manage Internet. So there are a lot of similarities. And if we move up to the level of global governance on UN Security Council, uh, here Russia and China find each other in the same boat just naturally as being the two authoritarian regimes out of five permanent members of the UN Security Council. So these are the three fundamental drivers. And on top of that sits the attitude of their leaders, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, towards the U.S. and deep suspicious that the national security establishment has towards the U.S. global role. So on that point, I'd like to ask you about Russian and Chinese worldviews and whether these perspectives, these views completely coincide. In the national security strategy document that was released at the end of 2017 in the United States, Russia and China were called revisionist powers. Uh, So both countries want to weaken U.S. influence in the world, but, but do they really share the same vision for the international order? Are they revisionist in the same way with the same objectives? I think that they are revisionist in the way that both reject the U.S. dominance or U.S.-led international liberal order, as the D.C. flank now goes. But uh, I don't think that they are very articulate and very clear on what the desired design of the international order is. Uh, I don't think that we have a 100% clarity in the Chinese discourse. It's maybe a picture imprinted in Xi Jinping's brain somewhere, but I don't think that we have a coherent set of ideas. And I don't think that we have a coherent set of ideas on the Russian side. Uh, But I think that even if we try to dissect on what's going on in the leadership rates and what the broader view of the political and military security elite is, there will be significant differences. I don't think that Russia is competing for uh, global supremacy, that it wants to return to the glorious 
times of Tsarist Russia or of the Soviet Union, I think that Russia is pretty realistic that it will never be again the top tier uh, player. And it can limit itself to sit at some uh, some form of the UN Security Council again, where it has a veto power, where it's not the top dog, but it is at the table where the major decisions are taken. And it can say at any moment, no. Uh, and that's the vision. And Russia would love to see a structure where on very top there is China and the U.S. maybe, and they are in confrontation and cooperation at points. And there is a second-tier club of powers like Russia and maybe India and maybe Japan divorced from the U.S. alliance. So that's the Russian vision. And nobody can impose its will on Russia. That's the major point. I think that for China, China is much less clear of what it wants. It probably wants a China's centered regional security arrangement in Asia, so we don't know how it will look like. It probably wants to have much more say in the affairs of global governance, including global institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, WTO. And uh, at the same time, it's happy with a lot of rules of Bretton Woods consensus or many parts of the U.S.-led order, at least on the economic side. So I think that the Chinese attitude here is pretty pretty mixed, and it has much more stake and skin in the game in the economic part of it because it relies on foreign trade and technology, whereas Russia is much more a supplier of raw materials and commodities to the global market. So it doesn't care that much about the trade and investment regimes globally doesn't have the sophistication or understanding or really skin in the game of that. And then on tactical level, I think that uh, we see very clear differences. For example, China doesn't see the need to recognize Crimea as part of Russian territory. Uh, it can help Russia to build a cable that supplies electricity to Crimea, but it doesn't need to recognize this part of Ukraine as Russian territory. Uh, by the same token, Russia doesn't seem to recognize Chinese claims inside the nine-dash line or its claims on artificial feature that it has created in the South China Sea because it doesn't want to jeopardize its own relationship with Vietnam, an important uh, partner for Russia. And I think that both countries so far have managed to navigate those disagreements and fall to this bottom line, which is not always with each other but never against each other. So there's one area of Russia-China cooperation that I'm interested in hearing your views on, and that is in missile defense. And I think it was 2016, I attended the PLA's Xiangshan Forum, and there was a joint Russia-China press briefing uh, about missile defense. Can you maybe talk about how the two countries are working together and toward what ends? I guess that both countries see the U.S. plans for developing a global missile defense shield as a threat to its nuclear deterrent. Uh, Russia is increasingly worried because of the collapse of global arms control regime. We've uh, said goodbye to INF Treaty. We'll probably say goodbye to the new SAR Treaty soon, which will open the Pandora box of global nuclear arms trade. And here, developments and advancement of uh, U.S. missile defense systems 
is really uh, posing a threat, according to Russian view, to nullify its deterrence. Uh, and I think that the same concern uh, is definitely on China's mind, particularly as it sees some of the elements developed in Northeast Asia, which are targeting the threats uh, coming from the North Korean regime, but can also be used against some of the Chinese targets in uh, northeast part of China. So here, Russia and China uh, are looking through a very similar lens. And I think that this is an experience which is very informed by Vladimir Putin's view and Vladimir Putin's experience with the United States. And uh, Xi Jinping's thinking on the issue is very much colored by the experience of his Russian colleague. And uh, the narrative of Vladimir Putin is very simple. Uh, listen, Xi, uh, whatever the Americans tell to you, uh, it's just they are trying to find more time to build their systems. They will first promise you working together on some of the issues or overcoming some of the resolutions, uh, some differences, and then it will all collapse and they will go ahead deploying the system they want. Uh, and that's very much the story of the FAT, uh, FAT system in uh, South Korea. So think about that. We need to work together. And we see some practical steps in both countries working together, though I think that a lot of work is classified. It's very hard to assess of what's happening on the ground. We've seen some table uh, top exercises, computer simulations done by the two countries. Uh, there are at least two uh, that were made public. And as far as I can understand, the next will be live uh, firing exercises. Uh, somewhere in Russia, most likely, where the two uh, missile defense forces will try to develop joint protocols how to address incoming threats. And since part of the Chinese arsenal will, build, will be built uh, on Russian-designed system, the S-400, it will be probably easier for the Russian and Chinese system to communicate and to have U.S. installations and the installations of its allies, including Japan and ROK, as targets. How would you describe the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping? And, and is their personal relationship very important to the overall bilateral relationship? I think it's very important because uh, Russia can be viewed as a democracy or as a mafia state, but in reality, I think the way to look at Russia is more of a monarchy. Uh, Russia is very much falling back on its very traditional structure in a way. So we have this presidency, we have the term limits, but in reality, it's just this uh, person uh, in power for the time. Nobody knows when he's actually going to depart. The, the Constitution says he uh, will be out by 2024. And I think the Chinese policy is getting uh, increasingly personalized, and the role of the core leader is increasingly important. It's probably uncomparable to the role that uh, Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin, or even Deng Xiaoping played uh, in the Chinese political system. As two systems become more and more personalized, the relationship between the two political leaders are increasingly important because if the bureaucracy sees that, hey, China is a priority for Putin and uh, he really wants 
the whole of the state and all the state-owned enterprise and all the oligarchs to build something with the Chinese. That's something the bureaucrats see that they get points and they get favors from their boss. And same with the Chinese, uh, if they see that, hey, Xi Jinping really likes this guy or he sees a strategic rationale to reach out to Russia and do something with the Russians, uh, it's probably worth having this piece of Russia agenda. And what's very important is that Putin and Xi Jinping, for the first time in history between Russia and China, are age mates. Uh, Putin is just six months elder. And they're very much soulmates. They have a lot of common experience they have discussed. Like their fathers fought in World War II against Japanese and Germans. And they have experienced hardships in their youth. And both want to make their countries great again. And both have deeply suspicions about the U.S. So I think that this relationship really is a very important factor driving the two countries closer together right now. I've been in discussions about China's relationship with Russia over uh, the past few years where observers have often predicted that friction would emerge uh, between the two countries. And and uh, people have cited potential friction over Central Asia, for example, um, you know, Chinese penetration of the Russian Far East. And so why is it that these issues have not really become contentious and, and, and caused more strain in the relationship? I think that the Chinese penetration of the Russian Far East is just a myth which was popular in Moscow and popular in Moscow liberal-minded intellectual circles without much data to support that point. At any given moment, there are about 500,000 Chinese in Russia, with half of them being in the European part of Russia, where the actual sizable labor market exists. The most Chinese-dominated city in Russia, though uh, Russia doesn't have Chinatown, is definitely Moscow. It's not Khabarovsk or Vladivostok. If you look at the uh, age structure of the Chinese society, the society is aging. Uh, the pressure on the labor market is there. And there are much more, many more attractive jobs in China that are currently uh, available in Russia. And then the last point uh, is just the size of the salaries. You have a country which is growing, depending on whatever you uh, believe Chinese official statistics or not, but it's growing roughly 6.5%, and it's the second largest economy by nominal GDP, and the first by PPP. And then in the Russian case, we have an economy which barely grows at a pace of roughly 2%, uh, and that's not among top 10 global economies. So the salaries are just different, and the magnitude of attractivity of labor market at home for the Chinese is even more visible after 2015 when the ruble crashed following collapse of the world price. So if you were a Chinese laborer from, let's say, Heilongjiang province, and you were sending back home 100 renminbi, after 2015, it's roughly 60. So for 60 kwai, you will find a decent job back home. And that's the reality. So Carnegie has conducted some field studies, and we see that more and more uh, Chinese who were permanently resident in Russia are coming back home. Uh, they are replaced with growing number of Chinese tourists 
through Russia. So if you walk over streets of Moscow or city, there are many more Chinese faces. But that's a good thing for the economy. I don't think that this Chinese growing demographic uh, pressure on the Russian Far East is any source of worries for the Russian leadership when it looks at China. And then when it comes to Central Asia, I think that Russia has finally realized after the global credit crunch of 2008-2009 and after the debate on how to react to Belt and Road and whether this is an encroachment on Russia's sphere of influence in Central Asia, I think that Moscow came to the conclusion that, hey, uh, all the five stands have commodities to offer. Where did they go? Russia is their direct competitor. And it doesn't have the money to buy their commodities and resell them in Europe anymore. It has troubles in marketing gas for Gazprom or oil for Rosnia. Uh, Transcaspian pipeline may be not coming, uh, may not materialize in the nearest future. And then the sheer volume that you can ship is limited. Iran is basically a smaller version of Russia. It's your natural competitor, which has... Uh, interest of buying commodities on its border and then reselling them to international markets. And then there are sanctions. Uh, TAPI, Trans-Afghanistan, pipeline going to India. Good luck talking to Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS about this. So it's only one uh, country which has sizable market for the commodities, which has money to buy it, which has ability to build infrastructure, and the local leadership is interested in some special arrangements, be it corruption or places in Chinese universities for their kids. China can deliver that. So I think Russia views at this that inevitable China will be towering presence in Central Asia with regard to the economy. Uh, it's going to be number one trading partner, number one source of loans, uh, number one investor. It's nothing that Russia can do about this. Uh, I think that what Russia is looking right now is to play a role of security provider. So there is a certain division of labor. China does the economic development. Russia does the hard security. It has boots on the ground in Kyrgyzstan. It has boots on the ground in Tajikistan. It has this uh, military alliance relationship with Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. Uh, the problem with this is that as China's economic class in the region grows, and as uh, Xinjiang gets or doesn't get fixed, I think China has natural strategic security interests in Central Asia, which will be probably not addressed through boots on the ground, but definitely will be addressed through uh, deeper ties between PLA and local militaries and uh, more engagement probably with some Chinese private military companies to protect Chinese facilities. And that's the reality that Russia has to accommodate in the future. And as far as I understand, Russia is starting to think through whether that's a challenge towards its position in Central Asia and whether Russia can do something about it. And I think the answer is actually not. And Russia will try just to convince uh, the countries itself because the Central Asian states have some agency in this. Uh, they will try to convince them to say, hey, it's probably unwise for you to put all the eggs in China's basket, both security and economy. So we understand that you want to do more economy with China. It's natural, but do at least some security with Russia. The China-Russia military relationship seems to be uh, expanding. Uh, in this past year, China was invited, for example, to 
participate for the first time in the Vostok military exercise. I think many observers found that somewhat surprising, especially since a few years ago there were reports that the Russian military had, in one of the Vostok military uh, exercises, simulated a contingency that involved China as uh, as an adversary. So I don't know if that's reliable, but uh, um, the relationship seems to be developing. So, what is what is your assessment of? the purposes of uh, the military cooperation uh, between the two countries. And could you envision any scenario, any contingency, in which the two would fight alongside each other? Um, I think that uh, this is a correct depiction that Russia used to view China as an adversary in the Far East, and that's going back to the Soviet times. That was the case up until 2014, and what happened after the Crimea annexation that the Russian state has realized that it really needs an outside strategic partner because Russia is now under sanctions and these sanctions are imposed by the U.S. and EU, two largest powerhouses in the world. Uh, they include Japan, Russia's neighbor, but part of G7. Uh, so if Russia needs new markets for its commodities, new source of technology and investment, where does it come from? And China was on everybody's mind. But then the Russian government asked, what about the risks that were preventing us from developing this partnership before? And they went through some of the risks that we discussed. And uh, they included, what about Chinese population in the Far East? What about Chinese growing influence in Central Asia? And the answers which were delivered roughly in 2014, 2015, said that, hey, either these risks are exaggerated or they don't exist, or these are the risks where Russia can do nothing about it and it has to live with the new reality. So I think that led to a very different threat perception coming from China. Russia saw that, hey, it's probably unnatural for China to think about some military scenarios in the Russian parties. Uh, it's a Nuclear superpower, it's just too dangerous, too costly. And what will China gain, what it cannot buy for its money? And uh, in order to send China a signal that, hey, we treat you as a friend, we really trust you, we are not an adversary anymore. Russia has taken this dramatic step to invite uh, Chinese troops to its most important strategic exercise uh, of the year, which was, again, directed uh, at China some years back. And I think that's also a signal to the outside world, including to the U.S., that if you continue to push Russia with the sanctions, Russia will naturally come closer to China. Uh, now when it comes to the military cooperation per se, I think that this uh, technical component, so more shipments of Russian arms to China, uh, is probably perhaps the most important and the most dangerous for U.S. interests, because Russia is compelled to sell more to China. It sees that China will be there in terms of R&D in five to ten years without Russia. So the more Russia sells now in large numbers, uh, the better, because it can earn money and can also make other neighbors of China, like India and Vietnam, who cannot buy this advanced weaponry from the U.S., like Patriot Pack 3, uh, or other systems, they will turn to Russia. And that's happening with S-400. We see that 
The first customer was China, the second customer is India, and the third customer will be probably some of the ASEAN nations, maybe Vietnam. So this is the most dangerous and important part. But then when it comes to uh, contingencies where the two countries can fight together, uh, they are obviously training that is visible at Vostok uh, to do just that. Uh, but there are very few spots where that can actually happen. I can envisage some uh, joint operations, like rescue operations uh, in uh, Africa, uh, where through more than upheaval like the one that China experienced in Libya, there are probably a lot of sense to work together. Uh, there are definitely some forms of discussion about joint contingencies on the Korean Peninsula if the situation goes out of hand and that there is uncontrolled collapse of the North Korean regime. Uh, but it's very hard to sense where these uh, discussions are going. And then it's definitely very easy to see Russia and China fighting some terrorist groups or some insurgency movements in Central Asia where they have been training long time together uh, under the Shanghai Cooperation Organization umbrella. So for my last question, I'd like you to maybe look into your crystal ball and uh, tell us, other than the military areas of potential cooperation, what are other areas that we might see uh, where Russia and China could cooperate where we have not seen cooperation in the past? And and what are potential areas of friction that might emerge in the coming years? I think on cooperation, definitely the two countries have uh, surfaced the $1 billion uh, U.S. dollars in mutual trade threshold last year. And there is an aim to grow this trade to $200 billion in 2024. Uh, that's a very ambitious target, I would say, despite Russia building a gas pipeline to China. There will be some more projects to deliver energy to China, but this figure really depends on the commodity prices. Uh, but the reality is there that Russia is trying to build more infrastructure links to the Chinese market and try to decrease its dependency on uh, Europe and build a new dependency on China. That's happening. Uh, last July was the first time when Russia shipped more oil to China than to Europe, and that's a historic shift. So I uh, I see that this dependency uh, is going to be built, and that's going to be an asymmetric dependency. Uh, Russia is just roughly 2% of China's overall trade, uh, whereas China is already in double digit and will be close to 20% of Russia's trade. Uh, same is for the investment, same is for loans. So China is just towering presence in this relationship. Uh, and that itself might create some frictions and sense of uneasiness. What I think is more important going forward in cooperation is that uh, given the conflicted nature of Russia's relationship with the West, particularly with the U.S., not going away anytime soon because of Russia's interference in U.S. election, I think that we're going to see that Russia is uh, turning itself into a junior partner in a way with all the formal respect that the Chinese patrons are paying to Moscow. Uh, and also to a playground for China's center monetary and financial order and China's center technological standards. So let's look at the Russian currency reserves. Uh, right now, uh, 15% of Russian currency reserves 
RGMI. That's 10 times more than an average percentage of yuan that any central bank in the world holds. That's a quarter of mobile reserves in JMD on the balance sheets of the central banks. And this number is growing because Russia is ditching its dollars and trying to diversify its holdings with the help of JMD. Russia is turning much more to trade in JMD, selling its oil for JMD, it's selling other commodities for JMD. And uh, it can be that the reserve currency of continental Eurasia, which would include of course, Russia and Central Asia and Pakistan will increasingly be JMB, despite China not having an open capital account. Uh, second part of this is technology. So as the U.S. intel community and the Western world is pushing out Chinese telecom uh, equipment firms like Huawei or ZTE out of its markets for concerns of national security, Russia has the same discussion. The problem is that it doesn't have a reliable Western alternative that won't be accessible to U.S. intel community. So your basic choice is, are you bought by the U.S. or are you bought by China? And the preference now is to be bought by China because the U.S. is a country which introduces sanctions against you, and China is the country which helps you to bail some of Putin's fans out. Uh, so when it comes to debate of 5G standards in Russia, China will be the towering presence, and I think that will cover some of the Central Asian states as well. That creates some challenges for Russia going forward, but that's also huge potential for uh, so-called Pax Sinica in continental Eurasia, uh, which is forced by Russia's uh, schism uh, with the West. I think that the major challenge for the two countries going forward and source of friction is whether China will manage to play this very skillful game of managing the Russian ego and Russian perception. Because Russia is not used to be a junior partner. It doesn't like to be mentored and it doesn't like to be treated that way. So far, I think Chinese have managed carefully to give Russia a lot of formal respect. But if we find just a more visible intrusion into Russian domestic affairs, attempts to build centers of influence and lobbying groups inside Russia, and uh, really nudging Russia to do something that China wants, and it, which is not in Russia's national interest, for example, supporting China unilaterally on the South China Sea and dumping support for Vietnam, I think that could be a source of friction. And it's requires a lot of skill on Chinese side to build this Russia's dependency on China, but also manage it properly. Well, great discussion. We have been talking with Alexander Gabuyev, who chairs the Russia and Asia Pacific Program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sasha. Thank you so much for having me, Bonnie.